a Radio 191 FM podcast. Kia ora New Zealand, you're listening to The Gist with Aniwa on Radio 191 FM. Today I'm interviewing Professor Wayne Hope from Auckland University of Technology School of Communications on his recent article in the daily blog, Virality and Globalisation, The Case of COVID-19. Kia ora Wayne, lovely to have you here with us. Uh, great, to, great to hear from you as well. So what do you see as the most pressing issue regarding media coverage in this COVID-19 environment? Um, basically, um, firstly, um, we need to look at the overall quality mm. and, and that differs from metre outlet to metre outlet. So quality issues are important. And by what I mean by quality issues is reliable information um, from reliable sources, which is transmitted to people, communicated to people, and also some healthy debate, um, which allows people to discuss what's going on at this time of crisis. So if I was to give an overview on the quality of our media coverage, um, I would say that if you look at public media, public mass media, TVNZ, RNZ, I think they're doing a pretty sound job. Um, that's mainly because uh, much of their content uh, is about public messaging uh, from the government, um, but their particular expert sources, um, primarily um, health experts from the University of Otago, immunologists and epidemiologists, they're on to the issue and their voices are quite authoritative. So the government is transmitting that. And so you get a, a good sort of sense of where we're at from a scientific point of view. So I think they've done a, um, a pretty good job and they've actually looked at all different angles uh, on the crisis as it's unfolded. Uh, it's economic ramifications, um, also social ramifications, how people are coping, uh, and so on. And also, uh, within Radio New Zealand in particular, I think Media Watch has done a really, really good job in actually doing an overview of the media, as I'm doing now, and just saying what they are saying, but also um, what the fate of the media industry in New Zealand is going to be uh, now that we've had major redundancies and major closures. So that's public media. Um, if we go to commercial newspapers, um, if I go from my own example up here in <coughs> New Zealand Herald, because mm. they're a commercial paper who, who like to um, sensationalise things a little, some of the early coverage uh, was quite lurid. Uh, an example I gave in my blog from about three and a half weeks ago was a front page saying pandemonium about people uh, panic shopping um, in supermarkets, and on the same front page there was a picture of a fellow in a fumigation mask with a whole lot of astronaut gear. Actually that picture was taken in Tehran and Iran and had nothing to do with New Zealand, but the juxtaposition between that image and the headline made it look as though it was all joined up in the same pandemonium, if you know what I mean. So I thought that was pretty irresponsible. However, mm. since then, the New Zealand Herald and other dailies have, have actually settled into the new normal and they're concentrating more on sort of straight-up um, reportage of what's going on um, as the situation unfolds. If we look at commercial radio, um, I think the ZB network um, has had a few difficulties because the different voices and the different um, DJs or people running the stations or running the shows have quite different views on the COVID-19 as it's unravelled. And also, um, some individuals have changed their mind or been putting forward quite different views um, from day to day and week to week. And uh, Mr. Hoskins is a good example of that. Okay, let's now look at internet and social media. 
Well, let's first have a look at Facebook groups, web, websites and so on. Um, there's one problem there. Um, at one level, you can go to good authoritative sources online if you know where to go. So two examples I would say that are reasonably authoritative are the, uh, the Centre for Disease Control, uh, CDC, and The Guardian Online has regular updates from uh, virologists and other social observers, which, you know, these, these stories are verified and they're, and they're um, pretty good quality. But on the other hand, some websites are churning out fake news about remedies for uh, COVID-19, um, rumours about how widespread it is or not widespread. We're getting websites that are telling us it's not such a big deal and a whole lot of confusing messages. And the problem with these messages is that they go around the internet and social media so fast, there's no room to verify them or to non-verify them. And so, therefore, people believe this stuff, not everybody, but a significant number, and they go into their Facebook groups, and you don't, can't tell what's accurate from what's not as far as Internet and social media um, is, is concerned in terms of quality. So that's the first issue here, is just what is the quality of coverage in terms of the accuracy of information and the capacity for a, a decent well-informed discussion. What advice would you give people navigating the online world at the moment? Well, first of all, um, I wouldn't ignore the mass media world, so you should look at RNZ and TVNZ um, to get a bit of a, a steer in what's happening. And then when you get issues or themes or individuals that come through public media, I know somebody like Professor Michael Baker or you get somebody like Susie Wilde, and when you get something, individuals coming through or ideas coming through, so use that as the basis to go on social media with. So instead of just going onto social media and having a trawl around on your Facebook group, going through some websites, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, there's a viral story. I wonder what that's about. Instead of doing all of that, um, sit down in advance and work out what parts of social media and the internet you want to go to and mm. just stick to those. Um, CDC, the Centre for Disease Control, the Guardian Online, and, and just... Just go to that. And sure, you can discuss with your friends how you're feeling and what isolation means for you and what the lockdown is all about. But in mm. terms of facts about the virus itself, you should actually do a little bit of research before you charge into cyberspace. Mm. Work out what authoritative sites you're going to go to and just stick to those. Don't mm. just sort of surf around and you come back all confused. Just a just do a bit of quality control of your own and just stick to those sites and discussion boards which you think are pretty, are pretty sus. That, mm. That's what I would do. I mean, and that's the recipe for using the internet and social media properly anyway, is that you need to, you need to be reasonably educated and you need to have a, a sense of what's relevant and what's not relevant even before you enter internet and social media. Mm. I mean, that, that's just a rule of life. Yeah, it's pretty easy, I think, to get swept up in the tides of information online because it's so incredibly vast. And also the thing about clickbait, not just in the news but in the social media algorithm, is that it is designed to entice us. Advertising is built around that, of course. Um, and even um, mass media outlets that are online uh, um, are, are putting out clickbait type stories to, to draw people in. So yes, people are enticed, uh, there's, no, there's no question about it. Mm. Um, so, but that enticement itself 
is uh, also something to be wary of. Mm. Um, you know, it's like uh, you don't buy everything that's advertised. So uh, ne also never should you uh, uh, charge into every clickbait that's advertised either. So it's just a, ma okay. just a matter of judgment, really. The difference um, between advertising and reliable information gets blurred. Mm. Uh, that's what corporate branding is all about. But there's another problem, and that is the sheer speed and volume of internet and social gen media generated information overwhelms people. It's, uh, it's like being in a blizzard. You know, if you're in the blizzard, all, all, you can't see the bigger picture, right? So you need to think about the bigger picture as much as you can um, by not being on the internet and social media. And then, as I said before, just using those sites which you've um, sussed out as being uh, authoritative. So do you think people should try and use social media less? They should use um, internet and social media in a discriminating way rather than an indiscriminate way. And the other thing, and this is what Chloe Swarbrick is actually saying, mm. is that even if you're doing the right things, you don't want to spend too much time out of a day on the internet and social media because you'll become emotionally overwhelmed and it'll, um, and it'll affect morale. It's bemusing as to why people choose to perpetuate the cycle of misinformation in their own social media posting, but it does make a lot more sense when you look at it from the perspective of, actually, it's easy to be enticed by this information because it's designed to entice us. And that's precisely why we're in this position as a society now, where we're struggling to distinguish between fake news and evidence-based reporting. Yes, no, I think that's, um, that's certainly true. And, uh, and also, uh, when you're hearing individuals, uh, individuals that might not be that well-informed, you know, but love to be seen and love to be heard, then people with that personality type are drawn into social media as well. So just as in real offline life, you would be um, a bit suspicious and sceptical about somebody who was mouthing off all the time and didn't seem to have much basis for their opinions. Mm. Well, then exactly the same applies um, in a social media environment because people like that, are um, their views are magnified and, and the more likes they seem to get, um, the, the more excited they get about doing it. Mm. And then they become an influencer. It's <laughs> a kind of a narcissism, um, which is uh, dangerous as well. Yeah, because the COVID thing hasn't just prompted discussion about the virus itself. It's also prompted discussion around the social effects it's going to have. There are people organising rent strike groups. There are people posting stories about how the dolphins have returned to the canals of Venice, which isn't even true. Well, some people uh, live their fantasies on the internet and social media. Mm. Um, fantasies are not just private anymore you can actually put them online and see if anybody else wants to share them and what this really means is that the, the distinction between the online world and the offline world is breaking down uh, that's, that's the conceptual point is that you don't have the mass media in one place and audiences in another well you still do but that's not the only game in town anymore it's, it's the online world and the offline world have all become blurred for instance, if you want to see someone's screenshot or snapshot of an article on social media and you want to see where it comes from, 
you basically have to investigate yourself. You have to backtrack and look it up yourself. It's not always clear the source because of that rapid spread of sharing information. And information can easily be distorted when it's passed around secondhand as well. Oh, for sure. It even happens in everyday life where, yeah. where the spreading of rumours uh, bears, uh, bears no resemblance to uh, what somebody said in the first place. Mm. Uh, the internet and social media is a terrific place for rumour. Mm. Uh, and it just accelerates the rumours and makes them travel faster. Now, your point about um, seeing something come up on your screen and someone's given you a, an article, online article to look at, so, okay, so you can go back and check out its veracity and whether it's authoritative or not. The point is all of that takes time. So you might mm. be sent about 10 stuff like that. No one's got enough time in their day to um, chronologically check each individual story because everything's coming out in a blizzard. Uh, and that's, that's one of the structural weaknesses of internet and social media. It's strange because it's meant to be a free internet, and it is, but also it's created all these problems. Well, as um, uh, one phrase that media researchers use in, in terms of what I've just been saying is called info-glut. You know when you have a glut of information or a glut of things, there's too much of things? Never before in the whole of human history has so much content in text, image, sound been generated so fast. And in times of crisis, like when there's a virus, um, that creates a lot of difficulties in terms of public understanding. And yet people seem to keep coming back. Do you think it's because it's kind of an addictive cycle? Well, if you're well informed and you use the internet and social media in a discriminating way, um, that's fine. I mean, not, not every internet and social media user is, is, is being addicted. Um, you can use these environments in incredibly productive ways. I wouldn't be able to do my own research if it wasn't for uh, what the internet makes available to me in terms of um, academic sources. It just wouldn't be possible. So there's enormous pluses within the internet and social media, but it also has these downsides as well. I reckon we should move on to the part of your article that covers how the economy will be affected and globalisation. So why does globalisation matter in the discussion of COVID-19 and how is it relevant to how our economy will be affected during the pandemic? Okay, I'll just take this through uh, step by step. Uh, first of all, globalisation, uh, what that means is human interconnections across the world or across geographic space. So that's always happened. There have been, always been mass migrations from one part of the world to the next and so on. What's different today is the velocity of globalisation, uh, the speed of globalisation. So that means, for example, that when human beings interact, they interact a lot, a lot faster than they used to. So during the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920, um, the disease was spread um, mainly through ships and railways. Uh, in COVID-19, we've got airports and hundreds of millions of people a year are using major airports around the world. And mm. major airports are just petri dishes. And that's how um, the virus skips from country to country. So you've got the velocity of movement among people, um, which actually makes the virus go faster. And then, of course, we have the very fast speeds of communication on the internet and social media and mass media that I talked about earlier, and that creates viral messages, uh, which, as we said, um, may be believable um, or not. Now we get to the economics, 
Um, globalization is just one part of global capitalism. So a capitalist system is now totally global in scale. It's not just one country's economy followed by another country's economy and another country's economy. Everything is economically connected. So, for example, you've got massive factory complexes in China and um, produce all the consumer durables, just about, um, that people consume in the West. Um, everything from shoes and clothing uh, to IT products and devices. So they produce in those factories, right? And they go to the Chinese ports and there's all these supply chains where um, all of these consumer durables, IT products, um, yeah, they're transported to North America, South America, uh, Western Europe and so on. And then uh, they're sold in shops in these other countries and that's all part of consumer demand. Well, when you get a virus, um, it actually destroys all those linkages. So mm. if you get a virus in a country which has lots of supply chains, like China, then it slows down the supply, supply chains because everybody's in lockdown. Um, or at least tens and tens of millions of people are in lockdown. So you can't actually produce anything and you can't transport anything. And then let's say that the Chinese situation improves and they open their factories again and their supply lines seem to be working, well, people in the West can't buy these products because they're in lockdown and there's no advertising and there's no shops open. So um, you've got to have all the links in the chain uh, working simultaneously. If they're not working simultaneously, then businesses go under, workers lose their job, and you get a never-ending spiral of, uh, of, of poverty. Um, and then uh, there's another element of global capitalism which has been hit really hard, and that's tourism. And tourism is the ultimate global business. You know, you get mm. people from one country traveling to other countries, whether by plane or by cruise ship. Tracking these people is enormously difficult, but the fact that there's so much money to be made out of tourism by the airlines, by hospitality industries, by theme parks, all, all that stuff, once tourism is not possible because you need to lock everybody down, um, then billions of dollars are at stake um, and uh, you get massive layoffs. And then I should mention the financial system. Um, that's all globally connected as well. Now, the global financial system looks reasonably sound at the moment, um, but in a worst-case scenario, um, banks might get into trouble and then that will have a domino effect around the planet, uh, just like it did in the, uh, in the Great Depression. So what you're actually seeing is um, the, on the one hand you've got a course of a virus which is bad enough but it's not as it's not as rampant and as utterly fatal as Spanish flu of 1920 but the economic carnage in proportion to the virus is a lot lot worse mm. because the global capitalist system is so fragile right and the reason why it's fragile is what I'd like to get to in the article, you cite the introduction of neoliberal policies as the reason why our economic sovereignty has been undermined in New Zealand and why this house of cards that we have uh, is so fragile. Let's just say that the snap election of Roger Douglas in 1984 hadn't happened. Would we be in such a precarious position as a country? Well, the first question here is um, in regard to neoliberalism, which mm. is a cluster of ideas 
which suggests that uh, the state should get out of economic management as fast as possible, uh, that free markets should be allowed to operate um, by themselves, um, that the public service should be commercialised, um, that unions um, should be either banned or undermined, um, uh, that state, formerly state assets should be privatised. All of these developments, what they do is that they give the state or governments around the world less and less power compared to what they had before. And the kind of power that they're losing is the power to tax and spend. If governments have, the, I don't mean total power, but if they have some power to tax and spend, like raise taxes um, instead of having tax, lots of tax evasion, having a top rate in the 40s instead of a ridiculously low 33% as it is in New Zealand, okay, and if they're able to spend money through state-led investment out of that extra tax returns, then it's actually easier to deal with the effects of a virus. And we see this already today when some, uh, the United Kingdom's government has now spent more money on health infrastructure than what was made available in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour manifesto. Um, mm. uh, our infrastructure spending has just been given a massive $1 trillion boost in, in the USA about uh, a week or so ago. Uh, massive spending boosts um, in, in Australia from the Scott Morrison government. Now, this idea that um, state-led public spending can actually help um, make depression not as bad and can actually help recover the economy. This idea was actually um, poo-poo. It was actually um, said, no, that's ridiculous, when neoliberalism arrived. But all of a sudden, now we're coming back to it. And the key point I'm making here is that the role of the state is absolutely crucial. And mm -hmm. what the state can do, it can actually oversee a national economy. Uh, so the problem in New Zealand is that we used to have a national economy which had some local manufacturing, uh, which had some agriculture, uh, which, which had some, including some exports, of course, uh, which, which had tourism, uh, but it was a nationally constituted economy for the most part. What's happened since 1984 um, is that New Zealand's national economy has kind of disintegrated. It's no longer a national economy. It's just exposed to global economic forces everywhere you look. And mm. that is why the close down of tourism um, has, has had such a devastating economic impact um, because it affects communities all over New Zealand. And these towns and communities um, were able to survive much better without over-dependence on tourism uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but because tourism uh, is a global business and because it links into local economies, then we're exposed because um, uh, we're linked up to global capitalism. Mm. So that, those are the points I'm trying to make. If you don't have state-led um, public investment and if you don't have all that much economic sovereignty around your nation, um, then you're going to get slaughtered uh, when something like COVID-19 comes along and global capitalism ravages um, your national economy. The right for overseas corporates to invest in New Zealand is also the right to actually uninvest. Okay, so... Um, it's all very well to say it's good having overseas corporates come to New Zealand because they create jobs. Mm. But they're not creating jobs now. They're, they're reducing jobs. And Bauer Media is a classic case study. Right. So 
now the shit's hit the fan and they're going to protect their own rather than protecting us. Yes, well, Bauer Media is a major German media conglomerate and their first priority is to their shareholders. And mm. what they're, I mean their shareholders in Europe. And so what their shareholders want, and I mean large shareholders, not small ones, what they want is they want the company to get through this and then return to profitability. And Bauer decided that uh, one way that they could do that uh, was to ditch New Zealand's assets. Because New Zealand's just a small country and they knew the government wouldn't do anything and they didn't. They just wrung their hands. So they just got away with it scot-free. So much for global yeah. capitalism. We always had been dependent on exports and, um, and selling our way to the rest of the world. That had always been the case. But we had... We had a little bit of insulation. We had we had a little bit of a nationally constituted economy. But after the mid-80s, uh, that just went. And mm-hmm. so we're now reaping the disbenefits um, as we speak. One of the reasons that um, people didn't seem to think it was a bad idea at the time, you know, during the era of privatisation, um, the absolute crushing of tariffs, um, the... Uh, cutting back on welfare expense, all those things. One of the reasons is that um, neoliberal thought and ways of looking at the world um, took over the Labour Party So uh, in the early to mid-80s. So what that meant was that both part- major parties in the end um, supported the same economic doctrine. And the reason we know this is because we had the emergence of the alliance and then out of that also the Green Party and those kinds of parties um, were opposed to neoliberalism and uh, because they saw that the two-party system was just reproducing this orthodoxy which has 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 proved to be extremely fragile and counterproductive. Yeah and now they're introducing welfare and what have you back into the system and you've got to wonder whether they can afford it well, actually, in my view, um, like I applaud the government for their first big economic stimulus package. That was good. Mm. But what they should do moving forward is, uh, first of all, I think they should introduce universal benefit income for everybody, and mm. it's out of a job. So we've got a, um, a ceiling. Um, on, sorry, that's not a ceiling. Um, so we've got a level below which you won't get mass poverty. And mm. to pay for universal benefit income, as well as our health and education infrastructures, you raise the top rate of tax, because 33% is far too low in New Zealand, and in my view, anybody earning 200 grand and up should be getting taxed at about 40% plus, Uh, and that's not even to to mention also the prospect of financial transaction taxes, and maybe, uh, um, maybe even a little capital gains taxes, in other words, um, the one percent, uh, those that are the wealthiest in the country, um, should actually put their hands in their pockets and um, provide an opportunity for poorer people to have a have a chance in this coming depression. Mm. Mm. So I think the government needs to do structural things. They need to restructure the tax system a bit instead of having a flat rate mm. that was introduced by John Key in 2008. Mm. Um, and and they need to think about universal benefit income um, if, if they've got the courage to do so because without doing those things, uh, this depression we're moving into is going to be around for quite some time and even once a, virus, once a vaccine for the virus has been discovered, 
it'll take a while to recover. But the government needs to take these measures that I'm suggesting in order that they can recover, in order that the economy can recover. And these are not just my ideas. Uh, these kinds of ideas come from a very famous economist called John Maynard Keynes, um, mm. who provided a brilliant critique on how to get out of the Great Depression of the early 1930s. Okay. Yes, I think we should be looking at Keynes's critique of what caused the Great Depression and what should be done to actually um, reduce it and move out of it. And it's a cyclic history is happening in a cycle type thing. Capitalism has always been cyclic. It's just, mm. If you study economic history, it's just exactly the way things are. There's a cyclic history in New Zealand as well. So the first, if you look at modern New Zealand, the first great economic recession, almost a depression, uh, was the 1880s. New Zealand was in big trouble then. Um, it was difficult to sell its exports. Our financial system was pretty well run by British banks. It was a real struggle. Um, the Prime Minister of the time, Julius Vogel, had to get in lots and lots of immigration and build up the population, and eventually he was able to rebuild road and railway infrastructure or expand road and railway infrastructure. So that was the 1880s. Uh, the next great um, economic meltdown was the Great Depression of the early 1930s, uh, which was caused by industrial, semi-industrial collapse and um, financial collapse in the United States, which rippled around the world and affected our exports uh, dramatically, and our small agricultural-based economy um, basically contracted, and unemployment rates in New Zealand were massive. And then the third major um, disastrous economic event leading to a very sharp recession, um, hopefully not as big a depression as the 1930s, but the third major uh, economic slump is now, the, uh, mm. the COVID-19 economic crisis. So this is, it is cyclic. When you said that if we don't introduce these measures, or if our government, sorry, doesn't introduce these measures, universal basic income and progressive taxation... How long do you expect this depression would last? Okay, well, the first thing, it depends on um, it depends on when we go out of level four. It depends mm. on when we go out of level two. It depends mm. on when we go out of um, level two into not a level at all. Um, it also depends on when a vaccine is um, available and how available it is. Um, so those are all things we don't know. But given those developments, all I'm saying is that the, the economic recession, possibly a depression if it gets a lot, lot worse, um, is going to last quite a bit longer than uh, just the arrival of the vaccine. The reconstruction of the country uh, is not going to be fast. It's mm. going to be relatively slow, and um, there's going to be a lot of unemployment for a long time yet. Like, Tourism is not just going to come back automatically. It's just going to gradually come back. And there'll be some aspects of the tourism industry which will be damaged beyond repair. And I'm thinking here in particular of the cruise ship industry. Older people with money to spend aren't likely to get onto cruise ships and uh, travel around the world, including New Zealand, um, all that easily. Mm. Once they realise that if a virus breaks out, it's impossible to quarantine part of a ship. 
Mm. That's going to have a really long-term effect on the cruise industry. And the cruise industry uh, brought a lot of people with spending power into New Zealand, right? So, so tourism will recover, um, but there'll be parts of the industry which um, won't recover, and the rest of it will take a while. Myself and there are a lot of people around me too. Um, I'm talking about people coming straight out of college and looking for work that I'm seeing desperately trying to read the tea leaves to figure out what industries will still be left and what will be able to thrive after this. Yes, well, you put your finger on a very serious issue and that's youth unemployment. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that's a very, very big problem because if, if young people are employed with jobs that they feel satisfied in, and, and those jobs deliver a reasonable standard of living, and then the, the young generation provides hope for the future, but and if youth unemployment is really high, then um, a feeling of hopelessness among our poorest and youngest members of the population uh, is going to be very bad for the country as a whole. Is there any action that the public can take towards pushing for the type of things that we want? say, basic income, progressive taxation. Because a lot of people, as you know, are trying to agitate online Facebook groups for these things, which doesn't seem to be very effective. Should, be, should we be writing letters to our government? Yes, well, at the moment, uh, we're in a, um, a, we're in a, a crisis, uh, a COVID-19 crisis, and there's no vaccine. So um, the exigencies of that are going to be pressed on everybody's mind. You know, the people don't want their relatives to get sick and die. Um, so that's that's what people are looking at. They're looking at health and security. Mm. When a vaccine comes along, and when we when the, when they get a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, then it's the way forward, um, which is going to um, be a subject of political debate. Um, mm. And I'm already seeing. Um, various union groups standing up for their workers because their employers were not giving them uh, sufficient health and safety gear. Well, you know, out of this, you could get a more robust union movement. Um, people and jobs might be a little less passive in terms of what the employer tells them. There might be a bit of social solidarity might emerge out of this. Mm. Um, and every crisis has the potential for renewal of some kind. Mm. Okay, so um, crisis leads to renewal, and it's just the content and form that that renewal will take is the big issue. And by content and form, I mean, you know, what economic policies, what social policies. And also, it's also about uh, what people might be doing in their local communities to help each other a little bit more, uh, to set up cooperative ways of living and operating. Um, there's a whole range of of things that people might want to do um, in order to um, perhaps even partially escape uh, the treadmill of modern capitalism. So there may, be, there may be a move towards alternative ways of living, just, just as there was uh, in the 60s and early 70s, funnily enough. One of the brightest things that's come out of this crisis too, I think, is that it shocked a lot of people. And it's lent itself to a greater sense of community because we realise that that can be stripped away and we're being isolated at the moment. Communities are very fragile. A crisis like this brings out the best of human nature and the worst all at the same time. So we just have to work hard that the best elements of human nature prevail. Mm. That's, that's really 
that's really what we've got to um, work, work towards. And, and remember, when New Zealand went through a depression, an economic slump, that, is, it's, it's gonna, uh, that was worse than what we're going to get, honestly. Um, people, will, people who remember the depression are no longer around, but take it from me, as who studied history, the economic slump of the early 30s in New Zealand was massive, absolutely massive. I mean, unemployment rates in some areas were 20 and 30%. Right. Wow. Now, the point is, um, New Zealand got out of it. Okay. Uh, partly through fortunate circumstances and partly through proactive government policies, um, namely carried out by the first Labour government of 1935, mm. the Babbage government. So, out of every crisis comes a renewal if people are prepared to um, engage in collective spirit. Yeah, and also get creative. Universal basic income has always sounded to a lot of people like some kind of unrealistic, too-good-to-be-true solution. But when you look at it from the perspective that you're talking about, it's a practical thing that serves everybody. Yeah. First of all, it can be paid for um, because we need to tax the 1% a bit more. Mm. Um, Secondly, with universal benefit income, it allows more people to contribute to their community instead of just being committed to survival. And um, they can get involved in, in sports clubs and know each other's lawns and, and go to various um, social church groups. Get, get, just get involved in the um, community cohesion, which is there, build that cohesion up again. But if you're um, absolutely desperately poor, you can't do that. I mean, your life is just governed by survival. And and UBI can actually reduce the number of people that are in that situation. That's why it's urgently needed. Not only that, but Chloe Swarbrick's been talking about this a lot in her videos, which is that a lot of people now are turning to artists at the moment to get them through this crisis. And she's basically saying that coming out of this, we need to invest more in these community things, these kind of soul-nurturing things, actually, more than we have been. Well, that's right. I think uh, out of this COVID-19 crisis, all around the world, actually, um, you're going to get an efflorescence of art, um, all sorts of literature, poetry, short stories, novels. There's going to be some brilliant academic writing on the subject. There's going to be major books come out. There's going to be major documentaries. Um... Uh, and there's going to be some outstanding investigative journalism. Um, the pity in New Zealand, of course, is that where that journalism might have come from has has disappeared, thanks to um, uh, thanks to thanks to Bauer. But yes, I agree with Chloe. I think this this could be an opportunity for some uh, some real uh, some real you know cultural expression. Uh, mm. reflecting on the times we're in and the times we're going through and putting it into historical context and wondering where our future is now. Um, I mean, we've all heard of the writer Margaret Atwood. Mm. Now, she's actually she's written, written a novel that has a major place given in the novel to the incidents of a virus. Um, so she's written about all these things. A lot mm. of science fiction writers have covered the same territory already, you know. One particular author I should point to is Mike Davis, uh, the famous urban geographer from California, and, um, you know, he wrote a book on SARS and what would happen if if a SARS outbreak went worldwide, and and it was quite a chilling book, and um, now he's been asked by The Guardian and other 
media outlets to comment on this. Um, one of his main comments is that in times like this, you get people who are pessimists about things, and then you get people who are optimistic about things. He's not saying that one or the other is automatically wrong, but it, you get sort of divergences of view in terms of people's general disposition. Right, because some people have been like completely doom and gloom, uh, whereas other people have been positive to the point where it's bordering on delusional or mania. Well, in my view, we need to have a... Um, yeah, oh, yeah, delusionism. Yeah. Well, these, these are people who are uh, yeah, swimming at the beach and are still trying to go on yeah. the tours. They yeah. think everything's cheery and rosy. And yeah. um, we'll get through this. We'll just wait for a vaccine and then I can come back to New Zealand again and perhaps mix with a few more people. Should be right. Yeah, not just that, but I think some people, they believe that they're going to be returning to the same world that we left behind, but actually that world has changed and um, we're going to need to think really critically about what to do next. Uh, absolutely, yeah, there's no, there's, no, there's no question about that. Yeah. It's a pretty good note to end on, actually. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to put out there? Uh, solidarity and hope, that's what I'll put out there. Cool. Thank you, Wayne, for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to interview you, and you're a wealth of information. Oh, well, thank you very, very much. Um, uh, it's been my pleasure to be um, on the air. And, um, and I hope people find what I've said interesting and um, enlightening. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.